0: My mum uh, frequently reminded me that when I was a, a young child, barely able to walk, she used to push me to the shops in the in the pram then. Um, and uh, one of the, the routes she went to was over the, the River Lostock at uh, Bamba Bridge. We used to call it Dandy Brook. And apparently I was um, fascinated by watching the sticklebacks swimming Um, below the the footbridge Um, and from a very young age um, I had this fascination with fish and um, when I was old enough I went down to the river with a bottle uh, tied on a piece of string with a worm in it and that's when I caught my first fish Um, a few years later I was bought a, a fishing rod for my birthday and was allowed to then go fishing in the the rivers and the the ponds locally and I carried on fishing till I was 18 including some competitive fishing Um, but I I, I kind of discovered ecology when I went to university at Liverpool and uh, haven't looked back since. So I'm John Lamb, uh, senior conservation officer with the Lancashire Wildlife Trust. Um, I've been working for the Wildlife Trust for the nearly 21 years now. Um, my well, I've got an interest in rivers as well as other habitats. Uh, you know, around Lancashire, it's not just rivers, but there is, you know, a particular fascination with rivers. I think, like most people. Um, it's, it's water, which is your know, life force, which we all depend on. Um, it's a source of um, inspiration um, to go swimming, paddling in from a young age, watching the fish, catching the fish, um, seeing the wildlife and the you know, aquatic flora and fauna. Well, there's there's quite a few people I could choose. Uh, David Attenborough is probably um, one of the biggest influences who I have had the pleasure of meeting together with most of the other main naturalists. But but David is such a a kind of a well-spoken, educated, enthusiastic, knowledgeable um, person who I think is so highly respected. Not just by people interested in natural history, um, but I think he's a, he's a role model um, for and a big influence and inspiration to so many people. Um, you know more so than than other naturalists. But I think yeah, I'd probably put David Attenborough at the the top of the list. And you know, it, despite his his age, he's still you know. Doing what he can, and uh, you know, getting out there, going to major events around the world, but also you know, speaking on um, on, on the media in, locally and uh, and increasingly saying how how important it is to you know um, really think about the impact we're having as a species and to change our ways um, so we reduce that impact and can live sustainably. A similar suppose, influence would have been my professor at, at Liverpool University, um, Professor Tony Bradshaw, who uh, again had, had that kind of David Attenborough kind of look and enthusiasm about him. Um, but he, he had a, a passion for how plants could colonise very hostile places, industrial wastelands, and the coal mines of Wales, which were heavily contaminated as a, as a growing medium. And But despite that, vegetation had the ability to colonise and survive in these uh, substrates with very high levels of heavy metals or, or man-made um, substances. And he was one of the first people to start studying and to try and identify the genetic makeup of the plants that enabled them to survive because it wasn't all specimens of that species it was only certain ones that were able to tolerate these very toxic to other plants levels and just that you know that um, the way we've affected the land through mining and quarrying and particularly and then just dumped the waste um, then provides basically fresh ground for succession for that colonization by the pioneer plants um, which then form the first soils uh, and then uh, that starts that process developing of then insects are able to then um, feed on the flowers uh, and then you get the soil building up and the habitat the communities forming and then all the birds and the mammals moving so that process kind of has been happening for millions of years on this planet but you don't often see it happening in front of your eyes but you go to a landscape like that and you see it's almost like you know going back to scratch after the um the life first formed on the planet and 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 plants started to to take over so he was the one who introduced me to to that process of succession you know, and we're so enthusiastic and interested in how, how that process starts and pass that on to, to me and hopefully the other students in the course. So we're, we're here at the, um, the confluence of the River Hodder um, and the Ribble, it's called Hodder Foot. And I chose this to, because it's it's one of the accessible um, and beautiful river confluences. We have uh, the Ribble, which is a primary river, which by primary I mean it has a source, which flows directly into the sea. Um, whereas the Hodder is a secondary river, which has a separate source, but its end is where it flows into the Ribble, so it doesn't have an estuary of its own, and it's. The, the two very, whilst they're converging to one, the two rivers above this point are, are quite different in character. There's the, the physical, the chemical, the biological and you could say the spiritual aspects of the river are all different. But here, those elements uh, all combine in, into the one. So we've got this, this meeting place of, of different river chemistries, different river biologies. Um, and you know the spiritual side because you know we we, we use water for uh, blessings, uh, baptisms, the sacred wells and springs. You know our connection with the water in different faiths goes back, you know, probably to the, the creation of those faiths. So the the you know there's a different influence in the spiritual side of the two rivers, and here they come together. And it's a be- There's a there's a heron there uh, feeding on the rock. Um, the, the walk up to this point, we saw swallows, swifts, house martins, and sand martins—all the main uh, Hirundines—and uh, there's the water in flower um, in the at the confluence here. So it's a, a beautiful spot both to look at aesthetically, the sound of the water, but also the, this this coming together of the two rivers. It's an accessible but also very beautiful spot so that's that's why i chose this point to come to today well the main uh, challenges facing the the rivers uh, and we could talk about these two rivers as an example representing many other rivers is the the input of, of pollutants um, into, into them which, you know, affects the, the water quality um, for the flora and fauna that um, depend um, on, on the rivers. The rivers are, are significantly cleaner now than they have been in the past. Um, you know, the, the main pollutions from the industrial revolutions are, are, have now disappeared. Um, And the main inputs now are from sewage works and from agricultural uh, runoff. Um, It's not necessarily deliberate deliberate input, but the application of pesticides, fertilisers, sheep dips um, onto the land uh, can end up in the water and uh, cause big problems um, for the uh, aquatic life and the fish. Um, that that are then affected. Um, There's also the um, kind of wrong connections uh, from developments. So instead of the water from the the sink and the bath and the washing machine going into the sewage works, they end up going going directly into the rivers. So that uh, misconnections and also overflow from septic tanks in rural communities which aren't maintained and then instead of the septic tank working very well um, the, the tank overflows and then that water ends up in the river. So with ongoing development um, this aspect isn't necessarily going away and in some areas it could get worse. Um, you know, People do pour chemicals down the drain in the street um, from the DIY projects and then that ends up in the rivers. Unscrupulous um, contractors, instead of taking it to a licensed uh, disposal or landfill site will just tip it down the drain or and then it ends up in the river so the, the rivers are facing a lot of chemical um, inputs and you know as something that people can do as individuals is check their connections on their own house or their own property or business and to make sure that they, they are connected right and then what's going to the sewer should be is going to the sewer and the the, the water that falls on the roof um, it is is the one that's going into the river without being polluted from these other sources. When we look at the the fish life, in particular, then uh, they have not just the uh, the problems they face on the uh, if they're migratory fish. Um, to this point, to this point, there's the uh, the barriers that they face to to continuing the journey to the spawning grounds. Um, you know, the work of the Ribble Rivers Trust is addressing those barriers to migration, and fish passes are being put on uh, some of those uh, structures and weirs, or indeed the structures are being removed altogether to enable that, that free movement uh, of a, a fish to the spawning grounds. With increasing um, cleaning up of the rivers and the uh, removal of the barriers then we have the opportunity for for the fish populations, particularly salmon and eels, to recover um, to, uh, hopefully, to former levels. Um, But there is the aspect of what's happening in the sea. Again, there's the pollution, there's fishing, uh, legal and illegal, um, as well as an increasing uh, problem which people are becoming aware of is the, the issue of plastics, particularly microplastics, which is in the smallest invertebrates, and then is being eaten by the fish, and ultimately is being eaten by, by people as well. So the issue of plastics, which thankfully is has now um, you know come to a is on the national agenda. We will see some positive movements, but people can uh, do things of their own initiative with plastics and start to uh, reduce their use of single plastics single-use plastics and not to use the products that have microplastics in them that end up um, coming out of the bath or going in the washing machine which then pass through the uh, sewage works and uh, end up in the aquatic environment so um, people doing what they can as well as helping out with um, the Ribble Rivers Trust and other organisations in their work parties along the riverbanks, you know, to help the the health of the rivers, the cooling of the rivers by um, planting or allowing trees to grow in the right places along the riverbanks, because rivers would naturally um, be very um, shaded and cool. If you don't, if I have a river with with um, with no trees on the banks, then the the water temperature increases, and that isn't good for the majority of the aquatic life. Well, there, there will be lots lots of projects I could think of um, that are by the riverside, which have kind of made an impression on me but I'll, one of the most obvious um, ones which I'll, I'll choose because it's so easy for people to visit is, is um just on the outskirts of Preston which was a former sand and gra- gravel quarry um, just next to the M6 and when that was finished the, the trust bought the site and uh, has made it into a nature reserve Um, put in a a floating visitor centre on one of the the legs that was left by the uh, sand and gravel extraction Um, put in hides, uh, walks, um, a player for children, set up forest schools um, in the woodland areas Um, we we run a health and well-being project for uh, people with mental health issues um, so it's it's accessible to um, all ages, um, all abilities, all faiths, and it is well used by all uh, manner of different people. And there's um, there's a, a message there uh, about um, the the nature, um, health and well-being, how people can engage in different ways. It's not not forced down your face. Um, the site is used. Uh, for many different, um, uh, by many different groups in many different ways for training and education, just relaxation, for photography, for art. Um, and it's, it's a way of what was um, agricultural land on a floodplain um, being turned into a, uh, an educational uh, nature reserve with uh, a lot of messages that can help a lot of people. So the yeah as um, with a conservation officer with the the Wildlife Trust um, the the role is is very varied um, it's also uh, very much I can do the things that I kind of want to, to do and choose to do so the main things um, at the moment uh, in June 2019 is is out in the field doing surveys. Uh, it's mainly grasslands at the moment, that's because the grassland project is coming to an end so I'm going back to sites that have had work done to see how the, that sympathetic conservation management has uh, enhanced the, the condition, the quality of those grasslands but every day in the field needs a day in the office writing up the results and writing up a report. Uh, so, so that's taking time at the moment. Um, other times of the years, um, local authorities will go out to public consultation with their local plans um, or um, policies or strategies uh, for that local plan or for planning applications. The planning applications is on a weekly basis whereas the local plans might be every five or ten years. But you know they, they come along at, at, with a, a time scale So those uh, plans, policies and applications need to be assessed for the ecological impact and then where appropriate uh, an objection or a comment or even in some cases support for those plans, policies or applications. Fundraising is part of the role and then um, Having secured the fundraisings, so I mentioned the grassland project, that was a five-year project with a project officer. I secured funding for a bee or pollinator project and also for an invasive species project. So those three members of staff all need line managing and supporting, so that, that comes as part of the job. And then I lead guided walks and training courses. Um, both for the Trust and other organisations to identify, for example, trees in summer and winter, uh, grasses, sedges, rushes and ferns, as well as wildflowers. Or it could be on how volunteers can do habitat condition assessments or habitat surveys as a training course. Um, And I lead guided walks for various organisations, pointing out the flora and the fauna, that can be seen. Some of these end up becoming um, guided nature trails so I am working with roughly parish council in Pendle at the moment to identify some nature walks around the parish and to produce some some guided leaflets that people can go around and, and, and follow um, and you know, I enjoy that diversity and that, the fact I have the flexibility to choose and direct um, the work as I, as I like to do it. Well, facing um, changes with or without uh, Brexit, there is the Environment Bill and that does present possibly the first time in 50 years for um, changes to be made to the way we manage the land in a a positive way. The the Environment Bill will, rather than um, paying land managers um, for the amount of food that they produce, be that crops or animals. is now looking at paying landowners for the the contribution they make to the landscape, to public access, to biodiversity, to the uh, quality and the quantity of the water that flows on and off the land, um, but also to carbon capture. So this hasn't happened before in this country. And we now have that um, un- first and unique opportunity to be holistic in the way the land, the soil and the water is managed. And if that's done correctly, and you know the opportunity is being presented to do it correctly, that um, the soil condition will improve, the water quality will improve, uh, the biodiversity will improve and hopefully linked with that, the landowners and the public's knowledge of the interconnectedness of everything we can see, the trees, the fields, the water, uh, the hills, that joined up holistic thinking and managing the land. So everything and everybody benefits um, is a tremendous and very exciting prospect. So I really um, do hope that that potential is realised. Between 2007 and 2017, in my spare time, I travelled around the county visiting the the largest, the most accessible and the most important examples of the the natural or semi-natural vegetation. Um, that Lancashire has. So, from the hills, the river valleys, the ancient woodlands, the ancient grasslands, the peat bogs, the um, lakes and tarns and the limestone pavement at Silverdale, um, I went to these places um, and kind of catalogued them into the most important, be it at European or national or, or local level, the biggest and the most accessible and then I've, I've written a book um, called Lancashire, A Journey into the Wild, which goes through the habitats and um, gives information on uh, the, the wildlife and the accessibility of these sites. And I would encourage people um, to, you know, to go to the, the local rivers, the local woodlands where there's access and to you know, spend time and get to know them, um, you know, appreciate the flora and fauna at different times of the year make a connection with nature, um, which is great for not just fresh air and exercise, but our health and wellbeing. So, you know, this the, the, the best places to go, um, and the most natural, the most important places to go are highlighted in the book. And so people can dip in and out to it. They could um, just decide, oh, we've got a free Saturday afternoon. What should we do? Choose a place in the book and go and visit it with the family or on their own or with friends. And I encourage people to go out and have their own journey into the wild and experience it in their own way. And hopefully my book will be a source of inspiration and guidance for them. Our Talking Rivers series of audio productions has been brought to you by Ribble Rivers Trust as part of the Ribble Life Together project. It celebrates the rich cultural, social and natural heritage of the ribble catchment. Creating the series has been made possible by National Lottery players through the Heritage Fund. For more episodes and information, visit riverlifetogether.org.